Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world. Uh, my name is Jeremy Shapiro, Research Director of the, at the ECFR. As you've probably noticed, I'm not Mark Leonard. Uh, I think you'll have to turn, learn to live with that level of disappointment. Mark has had a family emergency, so I am very graciously uh, stepping in for him. And today we're going to talk about the fifth anniversary of Russia's annexation with, of Crimea. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been checking your calendars recently, but it turns out that it has been five years. Uh, and that uh, actually is the fifth anniversary of uh, the referendum uh, that uh, in which the Crimean people supposedly affirmed that they wanted to be part of Russia. Um, it's not exactly something to celebrate, but it is something to mark. And I don't know, for those of you who are here in London, uh, frankly, we'd rather talk about anything than Brexit. So we're going to talk about this. With us to, to talk about this today, we have our, our excellent crew of uh, Kadri Leek, ECFR Senior Policy Fellow and Expert on Russia, and Niku Popesco, Director of the Wider Europe Program and Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR. Thanks for joining us, Niku and Kadri. So to get started, um, Niku, if I can sort of start with you. Um, you know, where are we five years on? What is the situation in in Crimea, uh, or really the situation that, uh, with between Russia and Ukraine, and what does it mean that five years on uh, we're still in roughly the same situation? I think Crimea, to a large extent, is a watershed for a number of reasons. It's a watershed for Russian foreign and domestic policies in multiple ways. Uh, but primarily, I'd say that it's at the same time, you know, Putin's biggest personal success so far from the perspective of Russian domestic politics and from the perspective of rebuilding Russian national pride. But at the same time, it's his single biggest uh, foreign policy failure. It's both, his, it's both his biggest success and his biggest failure. Yeah, I think it's his biggest success in domestic politics. And you know, it's the way Putin is going to get down in history books as the person who kind of brought Crimea back to Russia. This will be the way it will be depicted in Russian uh, history books. At the same time, it also marks the end of Russia's single most important foreign policy goal since 91, and that is to keep Ukraine close in the hope of regaining some degree of crucial influence over Ukraine. So Crimea is this kind of double mark for Russia, which is both at the same time and, and personally for Putin. Kadri, uh, how, how are the Russians seeing this? Do they see this as, which one do they see it as, the success or the failure that Niku uh, just mentioned. Uh, I noticed that uh, there's a lot of celebrations going on. They're releasing a five ruble coin with uh, the Kerch Strait Bridge on it. Uh, Putin will go to some celebration in Crimea the next few days. Uh, how are the Russians understanding what, what the result of the Crimea annexation has been? I think that is also twofold. Um, I think if you ask Russians whether Crimea should belong to Russia, you get overwhelming endorsement. It is, it is still popular, um, but the euphoria is going away. And I don't think there will be very big emotional celebrations in, in Moscow because agenda has changed. People are asking much more real life questions about incomes, 
about services, whether kindergarten places are available for the children, whether public transport is good and reliable, that sort of thing. And you could see that in Putin's latest speech to the Federal Assembly, where he tried to change agenda and focus on those sorts of questions. Not entirely credibly, uh, but, but still, they, they realize that the atmosphere has, has changed. What is interesting to me also, and what I'm picking up here and there with, in discussions with people who uh, deal with foreign policy, Crimea has still changed something for them. Uh, you know, many, uh, students of Russian International Affairs Institute would say that before 2014, they would have gone work for Russian MFA. After 2014, they don't think about it. So that is, that is curious. Why, why not? What's, what's wrong with the Russian MFA? It seems like a, a great job. You get to say pretty much anything you want. And, uh, uh, and it's a sort of exciting engagement with the world. Well, I think there are several reasons. Uh, one is that MFA is being also sidelined inside the Russian system. I don't think MFA actually supported annexation of Crimea. Uh, in the internal Russian discussions, they were not the ones who endorsed it. Oh, I see. So they just want to have a, they want to be in a better position within the Russian government where, where things actually matter. Some of them probably, but for others still that has shattered the long-term vision of what Russian foreign policy is like. And for diplomats, it has been very legalistic and very consistent. Uh, but Crimea, yes, it, it, it shattered that approach. And, and that is something different that has been happening since 2014. So is there, is there regret here that, uh, that this annexation took place? I think it's, um, regret is maybe too strong a word. But there is some ambivalent feelings because they see how that plays out on different fronts as, as concerns, uh, ways of making policy, uh, interpersonal relationships. And yeah, I think there is some ethical dimension as well for the people. But it doesn't amount to a regret. That's interesting. We don't hear a lot about the ethical dimension of Russian foreign policy here. Um, Niku, looking at this from the Ukrainian side, what does the, what does the loss of Crimea mean for Ukraine and for Ukrainian domestic politics? And how are they processing the idea that it's been gone for the last five years? In, a, in this sense, you cannot really delink Crimea, the effects of Crimea on Ukraine from the effects of uh, the war in Donbass and the Russian intervention in eastern Ukraine. So, you know, when we talk about Crimea, we actually talk about this much bigger descent into war in eastern Ukraine. Um, and that for sure had a consolidating effect on the Ukrainian nation. And even if you go back to Russian foreign policy goals on Ukraine as of October 2013, just before the Euromaidan protest started, but at the time the Russian hope was to include Ukraine into the Eurasian Union and, you know, start building deeper you know, links of interdependence and dependence for Ukraine than ever before. Now all of that is gone. Uh, it's not impossible that the Russians will, I mean, the Ru Russia will remain to a certain degree influential in Ukraine. There will always probably be a good 20, maybe up to 30% of Ukrainians who will see Russia favorably 
and there are and there will be political forces who will want some degree of normalization with Russia. But things will never be the same. These forces will never, you know, hope to get a majority in Ukrainian politics. Uh, and even if Ukraine will reach a degree of normalization of relations with Russia in seven or ten years, a bit like Georgia is is doing today, uh, you know, we'll never be back to a conversation about a potential, you know, Ukrainian membership of the Eurasian Economic Union or you know, Russian-led security organizations. So in this sense, even though the temperature in Russian-Ukrainian relations will probably go down in the next five or six years, Russia will never be back to where it was in terms of its outlook for uh, influencing Ukraine. Yeah, well, I'm also not going back to where I was in 2014, so I guess I can understand that. But I, I think the real, the, the real sort of critical question is, how is, how, how is Ukraine going to play it? Is Ukraine trying to get Crimea back or have they written off uh, five years later Crimea and they're just focused on the war in the Donbass? Well, I think they largely, they will never accept it. But to me, you know, I worked quite a lot and I traveled to most post-Soviet separatist zones, you know, to South Ossetia, Abkhazia, Transnistria. I've been spending almost 20 years on these subjects. And, you know, it took the Georgians and the Moldovans 50, almost, 15, almost 20 years to start accepting that they might not even need these separatist areas back into their countries. Now, the Georgian and Moldovan political elites do not really talk openly about it, but that's what most of them think. They've kind of arrived to a situation where they probably don't think, you know, reintegrating with Abkhazia or Transnistria will make their states stronger. To me, in this sense, it was remarkable to see that the Ukrainians have actually covered this space much quicker. In one or two years, most of the conversations in Kiev was about, of course, it's not that we're not going to get eastern, you know, parts of Donbass or Crimea back. We don't even need it. Um, you hear that a lot in in uh, in Kiev, and for sure, Ukraine would not be willing to, you know, go for a massive federalization and decentralization for the sake of regaining these territories. And in this sense, I think the split, in, you know, is acted in a happened to be very fast and very profound. And in this sense, the Ukrainians, a lot of them, have psychologically accepted that they would they would rather live in this smaller Ukraine then pay a big price to recapture not just Crimea, but even even uh, Donbass back. Well, that's a lot psychologically healthier than I deal with my losses. Um, it, Kadri, is, is it sort of in, in the reverse of that, is, is Crime, are Crimea and Donbass starting to become seen as a burden for Russia then after five years? Is it, have they taken something that the Ukrainians don't want and that now they have to keep? Um, I think Russia sees uh, Crimea and Donbass very differently. Uh, Russia has uh, integrated Crimea into Russia, and for them that is Russia and that is end of the story. Uh, that is not the same with uh, Donbass. I mean, Donbass they are keeping as a bridgehead uh, to use to influence Kiev's policymaking. Uh, it's not working very well right now. Uh, but they haven't lost hope that they are still able to use it. Minsk agreements that regulate Russia's uh, exit uh, from Donbass 
are very much Russia's agreements in the way that they basically legalized Donbass as a Trojan horse in the Ukrainian political system. So Donbass is not something that Russia wants to have. Uh, but it is not such a big burden either. Financially, yes, it does cost something, but this is not something that Russia cannot afford. Its politics is messy, and the locals do not always do as Moscow wishes, but Moscow still has considerable leverage over them, including of pretty um, straightforward kind, um, and, and the locals know it as well. So um, I don't think that is a sort of hot potato they want to get rid of. Uh, it's interesting because what both of you are describing is a sort of very unsatisfactory status quo uh, where in, in which uh, as much as U Ukraine is upset about the situation, as much as Russia is dissatisfied with the situation, neither of them have a huge incentive to, to change it. And it, it sounds, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, as if you both believe this is a situation which as unsatisfactory as it is can can last. So, I mean, the first question is, is that right? And the second question is, given that, are we likely to see flare-ups in this? We just had a, a few months ago uh, a, a scare of war um, in the Kerch Strait where Russia seized several Ukrainian ships and still has, I think, 24 Ukrainian sailors in custody. Um, is, this a, is this a status quo that we have as unsatisfactory as it is? Why, why don't you start, Nico, with that? There is Russia treats Donbass, if you want, as a weapon system, right? It costs it costs some money, but you have to pay for your defense. You have to pay for your rockets. You have to pay for your ministry of defense. So this is what Donbass is to Russia. It costs something, but it's a piece of the puzzle of what the Russians think is their national security. And they will never really be too upset with the need to pay this cost. Um, and when it comes to this conflict, there's never there's never a status quo. You know, even if people don't shoot at each other, all conflicts, you know, no conflict is ever frozen. Either the, the kind of split and division deepens, or incidents might happen. And in Ukraine, especially in the last year, we had two important trends. One is is the the, the Kerch Strait incident, which actually was just the last. Uh, event in the chain of events where Russia actually started to put increasing pressure as an attempt to destabilize the economy of eastern Ukraine, which is very dependent on its capacity to trade with the real world through the Kerch Strait. So, but why is Russia trying to destabilize the the economy of eastern Ukraine if they, if it's if they're roughly satisfied with where the situation is? But they're not roughly satisfied. Basically, you know, for the last fifteen years, Russia has been almost constantly putting pressure on the economies of half of the post-Soviet states. You know, Moldova, Georgia, Ukraine have been under almost constant embargoes in the last 15 years. Uh, they kind of go on and off. First, they are on milk or cheese, and then they, you know, are on wine. But even Belarus and Armenia get on and off on Russian trade embargo lists. So this policy is actually not so special. Uh, this policy of putting economic pressure on post-Soviet states is not that special. It's just that in the case of eastern Ukraine and its exports that go through the Kerch Strait from the ports of Mariupol and Berdyansk, 
this policy has a much stronger security dimension because you know Russia is enforcing this slowing down of Ukrainian trade basically with military power. So and that blew up in on the diplomatic agenda in November, and that is very likely that it will happen again. It's I'm sure it's not the last time we hear of a military incident in the Kerch Strait where Russian and Ukrainian boats are involved. Uh, it is very likely to happen in the future. But of course, Russia is not only putting pressure on the economy of Eastern Ukraine, it's putting, putting pressure on the economy of the entire uh, Ukraine, but for Ukrainian trade that happens through the Azov Sea and the Kerch Strait that acquires this urgent security dimension. So what does that mean then? Is it, is, uh, in terms of my question as to whether this situation is sustainable, do you, do you think that uh, even with those occasional security incidents, we can proceed in this sort of semi-frozen state for the next decade or two? Or does this situation have to come to some sort of head? I think it is not lasting still. I mean, it is relatively stable. It can stay as it is for a while more. But I think there are several things to take into account. First, Russia still tries to trade it for something in its relations with Ukraine or with the West, Donbass, uh, not Crimea. So if you remember Putin's peacekeeping proposal to bring UN peacekeepers into Donbass, I still think that there was that was an attempt to see for how high a price he can sell Donbass to international community. So he bought it to the market and then withdrew it. But nobody, but nobody bought. Nobody offered the price that Russia would have considered acceptable. Yes, and maybe maybe Russia's expectations were unrealistic. Maybe reason need to be corrected. But I think openings like this might come again, not necessarily towards the European Union, as was that one, uh, but maybe, you know, there is some thinking that once President Trump is re-elected in uh, two years' time, then maybe he is more free of domestic opposition and some sort of grand bargain with Russia could take place, where many questions get settled in the framework of a bigger package deal. What, what would Putin want for Donbass? Uh, say, talks about the new European security order and Ukraine's place in it. I think that is very much what he wants. That is actually something he hinted at even in that intermedium five years ago when uh, Russian troops had gained control of Crimea, but referendum and takeover hadn't yet happened. Uh, that yeah. is something they want. That well, is well, that brings us, I think, uh, very conveniently to the question of, of, of European and I guess US policy toward the Ukrainian problem. I think the, um, there could also be other endings uh, uh, to the status quo. So what I was referring to, a deal between Russia and Ukraine or Russia and the West, by which Ukraine gains the territory back, would be a positive ending, sort of. But it also could be that Yes, Russia will escalate that for whatever reasons to prevent something else in Ukraine or... And ultimately, if it stays as it is for too long, then that those regions really become unintegratable into Ukraine. That is not the case yet. Uh, as everyone working for OSCE in the region could tell you, people are crossing the border massively. Okay, okay. Well, let's, let's move on to the question of, of European policy toward uh, Ukraine, which I think Kadri's last uh, intervention brings up. The, 
it, it, it does seem as if European policy, just like the Russian and Ukrainian policies that have just been described, have sort of uh, settled into a new normal over the last five years. There is, uh, there are, there are sanctions that are in place, but they're, they're not moving in any direction. Um, it, and, uh, Kadri just talked about, uh, a, at least a potential trade that you could imagine talking about the European security order to try to break open the, um, uh, the, the Donbass situation, if not Crimea. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any interest in that in Europe. Uh, uh, there was a Bloomberg article, I think, just the other day, which mentioned that at the Munich Security Conference, Vice President Pence tried to get Angela Merkel interested in a, a freedom of navigation operation into the Kerch Strait, uh, by which he meant she should send German ships into the Sea of Azov, and she was not interested in that, to put it mildly. Uh, so what is it that Europe is doing about this situation, is, and does it want to do anything more? Uh, Niku, you want to start with that? Europe would be happy to do a bit more on Ukraine, but of course it, it's hysterically afraid of any risk of being forced to start responding to new security tensions in the Kerch Strait. So... It's ready to do a bit of diplomatic mediation, but it's nowhere, but it just basically prays to God that the Kerch straight situation does not deteriorate and it doesn't have to come up with answers for that. that and to be a very religious policy for secular countries. Well, yes, but it's also kind of a, a bit of an escapist type of policy because, as you know, Europe is fundamentally uncomfortable dealing with. Yeah. In the U.S., we would call that a faith-based foreign policy. Yeah, but that is more or less what Europe does around the Kerch Strait. So, you know, they try to push that back into the OEC and into the soft diplomatic uh, activities, which is fine. But, you know, we have not been able to really restabilize either Donbass. And in, in the last year, we actually woke up, Europe woke up with a new security problem around the Kerch Strait. And, you know, sometimes soft, persuasive diplomacy is actually not strong enough uh, to solve or even prevent uh, the emergence of new problems. So, in this sense, I understand why and how the European sentiment is to stay away from this type of incidents, which will happen in the future, I believe. But then, by not taking a forceful position on that, chances are that this accidents are more likely to happen. Uh, Kadri, what, what do you think about the European position on, on, on Crimea and Donbass? Is it, uh, is it evolving in any way? Does it need to evolve? Uh, well, Crimea position is not evolving. Um, and I, frankly, I don't think what practically you could do about it. It has its non-recognition policy, um, but, but that is it. Um, on Donbass, well, Europe is still handling the uh, Normandy format negotiations. And I think they are trying to breathe some new life into Rose now that the link between US and Moscow, Kurt Volker, uh, Vladislav Surkov negotiations have effectively stopped for a year already. And I think Normandy is still an important format. That's the only thing that people have agreed about. And um, for it to really work, I suppose some political forces need to change their calculations, uh, mostly Moscow, uh, maybe a little bit also uh, Kiev. 
but it could still be a vehicle uh, to allow Russia a face-saving way out of Donbass should Moscow be ready to accept it. All right. Well, maybe then just one last question. Um, five years from today, when Mark makes me do a 10th anniversary of the annexation of Crimea podcast because he claims yet another family emergency, uh, where do you think we'll be? Will, will, how will this conversation be different five years from now than it is today? You want to start with that, Niku? I think probably in, in the last five, last five years, before we talk about the next five years, I think Russian foreign policy became increasingly, increasingly expensive for Russia. This, this cost is not yet prohibitive. But it's increasingly expensive. All these, you know, mercenaries in the Central African Republic, Syria, Venezuela now, uh, the kind of proto-arms race that is even costlier than, than sending a couple of hundred mercenaries to Venezuela. All of these costs are piling up in purely military terms, but also in diplomatic terms and institutional terms and in all possible ways. Um, these costs are not yet prohibitive, but let's say that in five years, I think, you know, the current Russian foreign policy overdrive will start reaching an overstretch. So in this sense, my expectation in, in five years, this the type of foreign policy Russia is conducting today and will probably conduct in five years will be much more difficult for it to sustain. It will be costlier. It will generate more friction and will fundamentally uh, be facing a, a weaker and more irritated Russia than we are doing today. Um, but I think the trend. Uh, this is the worst thing about Russia. It's weak. It's more irritating when it's weaker and more irritating when it's stronger. Yeah, well, um, five years from now, I was just trying to think where we will be. It will be the second, uh, the final year of the second Donald Trump presidency. <laughs> oh, God. That's just cruel, country. Just cruel. I do it in purpose. If you want me to be more cruel, maybe that's the year year minus one of Ivanka Trump presidency. There is no there is no end to the, your guys' torture. Uh, and by the way, uh, given that this is March, I think it's the time for Russia's presidential election, exactly five years. And that should be someone other than Putin. Um, so I think... It may also be Trump. It may also, yes, it may be all sorts of people. Um, so I think that question will, um, the answer to that question will, will probably provide some information, but we don't have it yet. And some other dynamics, of course, are at play. I, I'm wondering about Russia-China relationship, because um, there is some dynamic there, um, and not all of it is to Russia's liking. Uh, for now, sort of, it's not alliance, but friendly relationship with China is handy for them. But I wonder whether in five years' time some briefing might not have occurred on that account uh, with implications in other policy areas. Okay, thank you. Well, mark your calendars for, uh, for March 2024, and we will resume this podcast and we'll play this all back. Um, but in the meantime, I think we need to move to our uh, bookshelf segment. Uh, Kadri and Niku, uh, what's on your bookshelf these days? Kadri, why don't you uh, start us off? I am reading uh, the latest book by Mark Kaleati titled, titled uh, We Need to Talk About Putin. 
Um, I think that is a very necessary book because it tries to explain the West, how the West gets Putin wrong. That was something I wanted to write myself, uh, but he did it first. Uh, and it's paradoxical that the longer we, uh, Putin has been in power, the less actually we understand him. So I think Mark has done a very thankful job. Is there anything particular that you learned, given that you're such an expert on Putin, anything particular that surprised you in that book? Uh, what I like about it is that it validates my own views about Putin. Ah, yeah, I like that in most books that I read, yeah. Uh, Niku, what's on your bookshelf? For me, because most foreign policy watchers tend to be quite depressed in recent years, my advice for them is to read books published and written before 1989. And uh, what you discover in those books is that actually, no, the world has not been better before and without the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> Um, people were even more worried in the 80s or 70s or 30s than they are now. So as part of a stream of books, old books that I'm reading, I'm actually reading now Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, which is a very detailed account of the events in St. Petersburg, uh, Petrograd at the time in uh, 1917. And it's a shockingly similar and a remarkably, remark remarkably similar series of events and dilemmas that people and revolutionaries and governments face as we've seen during the Euromaidan revolution in Ukraine and as we see today in Venezuela. So just the entire crowd dynamic and military thinking dynamic and police psychology is all described in a very, uh, you know, informed and analytical fashion by the, uh, in, in that book. And it's very interesting to read that book while thinking of Venezuela and Ukraine. So history does not repeat itself, but I guess it rhymes. Um, so I'm reading, uh, in, in trying to take into account uh, Niku's advice, I'm reading, uh, because believe it or not, I'm in a Teddy Roosevelt book club. I'm reading um, The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism by Doris Kearns Goodwin, which is about uh, the first decade of the 20th century, the, the, the so-called progressive era, which has a lot of echoes to the sort of trust busting that's going on now about Facebook and Google, because that's the moment when U.S. antitrust policy was formed and, and when they took on the big uh, steel and oil companies that had emerged out of the Industrial Revolution. Um, so that's it for the world in 30 minutes today. Thank you, Kadri and uh, Niku. We also have some exciting news for our, our listeners that EU Radio is now also broadcasting this podcast on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. and Wednesdays at uh, 9 a.m. Central European time every week. So you can listen to it at, uh, at the station euradio.fr. Uh, so that's another way for you to get this podcast uh, in the meantime, um, the, the technician for this podcast is Caterina Botel Asinaro, and our research assistant, who is now wandering through the, uh, the jungles of South America, is Jonathan Hackenbreuch. And uh, for me, for Mark Leonard, for Kadri Leek, and for Niku Popescu, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>